Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered, a collaboration. The last, final collaboration of this birthday extravaganza we've got going. Sniff, sniff, I know. It's a bit emotional, but it's been a long road. It's been a brilliant road, and I have so appreciated all your guys' support and well wishes and everything else besides. It's been amazing. I mean, as much fun as I had making this and as well I hoped you're reactions would be to it i never imagined i'd get so much love really i'm kind of overwhelmed almost it was amazing so thank you so much i'll never forget it we launch into an exciting new future with when diplomacy fails all thanks to your guys' support during this venture and so many others a reminder for perhaps one of the final times that i get to throw one of these reminders at you wdfpodcast.com guys keeping on pushing you towards that direction because Hey, I know that one of these days you'll think to yourself in an epiphany, I can give $2 a month, I can so give $2 a month. And you will, and you won't put on such a wondrous accent as that, but hey, you'll still be giving me money, you'll still be patronizing me, and in return you'll not only be knowing that you're supporting this podcast, but you'll be getting a good gift yourself. The likes of which depends on how many bajillions of dollars you're willing to give. 
I'm just kidding. Please check out tweetafpodcast.com. Thanks again, guys. I appreciate it so much. Today on the podcast, we have Benjamin Ashwell from Talking History, a podcast on the Italian unification. If you guys know me, you'll know that I've talked to Benjamin Ashwell in the past, so it's not like we're strangers. I mean, I've never had strangers on these kind of collabs before, so that shouldn't be surprising. But yeah, Benjamin Ashwell's a good guy, and stick around to the end to see just how far back we really go, but... Yeah, I'm really happy I did it, and I think it went really well. We go into loads of different stuff in this talk episode, collaboration episode. Oh, I don't know. The wheels have all come off. The wheels come off pretty quickly in this collaboration episode because (laughs) I pretty much failed to plug him at the start, and he has to be like, uh, well, I actually do a podcast. It's very funny. Just in case you thought I was infallible, I'm very clearly not. But yeah, the collaborations are coming to an end. This would be the... Technically, this is the final one, at least it's the final one on any particular episode, so I really hope you guys enjoy it. Benjamin Ashwell is a great host. We talk about everything from the tragedy of Italy's story to a whole host of other things like Cavour and whether he's as good as Bismarck after all. He's not. No way he is not. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoy it. Let me know what you think through the usual channels. Thanks and enjoy. Okay, folks, welcome to the collaboration episode on the first Italo-Ethiopian War. My guest today is Benjamin Ashwell from the History of the Italian Unification. Say hello, Benjamin. Hi, how's everyone doing? Good. We are all fantastic. I think now we're recording this. Sorry to break the fourth wall. I have a habit of doing that, but we're recording this in February. And when people actually get this, it'll be near the tail end of the crazy Five weeks to run wild, uh, fifth birthday of when diplomacy fails. So, my listeners may be a bit tired of all of all of all this content, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna give, a, gonna give it a good run today. So, I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's gonna be great. Gonna be good. a lot of, a lot of a lot of stuff to get through. I mean the the Italo-Ethiopian War. It's one of those. I, I was never completely happy with the episode, but I think part of that has to do with the fact that I decided it would be a good idea to get it done in a kind of rush job and release it on Christmas Eve. So that that might have had something to do with it. Uh, but I, I like to think that I gave it a better run around this time. So this kind of will flesh out flesh out that process. So is there anything... I, I normally start these episodes with a kind of, kind of, you could say, broad question, so to speak. I mean, one of the best ways to kind of approach wars or, or topics like this that aren't so well known is, is to basically ask you, uh, Benjamin... When you first learned of or or even heard of this war in in a basic sense, what kind of struck you about it? So I came to learn more about – well, so let me back up actually and maybe just give everybody a basic idea of what my podcast is about. Oh, that um, would have been a better way to start. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Well, that's, that's, that's quite all right. No, I, say that, I say that because it's relevant to my answer. My podcast is Talking History, the Italian Unification, and we cover the history of Italy between 1790 and 1870. Uh, simply put, it's the question of how did Italy go from being a collection of about 11 states, depending on what you want to call Italy and what you want to call a state, uh, in mm. 1790 to a single country in 1870. How did that happen? And what did it mean? What did it mean to become Italian? I started working on that podcast before I even ever heard your, your original episode all those many years ago mm. about the Italian-Ethiopian War. And what struck me about it was how how true to form it was for for early Italy. 
Italy was a country that lurched from crisis to crisis. Sure. Uh, in, in its early life, it was a um, a mirror in some ways to uh, to Bismarck's Germany. Well, even the fact that it occurred at the same time, like eighteen seventy. And, and that's kind of a funny thing. So the, the, the man who led Italian unification, the, the, there were several big players. The best known one's probably Giuseppe Garibaldi. But the, the politician who, who spearheaded unification, the, the Piedmontese prime minister, Cavour. And in his lifetime and shortly after, he was regarded by some, especially the British, as mm. the greatest politician who had ever lived. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean I mean, uh, actually, I was taking notes for my next episode on the topic, and I can, in fact, read a nice quote to that effect. Yeah. Give me just a handy. moment. Sure. <laughs> um, 1896, just about the same year as the Italo-Ethiopian War, Ethiopian War if not right. the same. Uh, American historian A. Lawrence Lovell wrote, Victor Emmanuel is the model constitutional king. Cavour, the idea of a cool, far-sighted statesman. Garibaldi, the perfect chieftain in irregular war, dashing but rash and hot-headed. Mazzini, the typical conspirator, ardent and fanatical, all of them full of generosity and devotion. Another guy, this one's better, famous British historian Trevelyan called Cavour the most wise and beneficent of all European statesmen of the 19th century, if not of all time. So he was a gigantic deal and you know, greatest of the 19th century must mean greater than Bismarck in this guy's opinion. Bismarck, of course, every, not everybody knows, but Bismarck is a famous historical figure, of whereas Cavour is little known outside of, you know, Italian history. Sure, yeah, yeah. And, and arguably faced greater challenges because of the resources at Italy's command compared with those of Germany's. Right. I mean, so Prussia was the biggest fish in the pond, except maybe Austria, and whether they're part of the same pond is question but Bismarck had a lot more to work with yeah Cavour in my podcast I, I kind of I have a hard time making up my mind about Cavour <laughs> whether he's a genius or a crazy fool who's lucky because some of the stuff he some of his plans are insane yeah I mean, he'll wake up one morning and go France France is our best friend we need to and then by afternoon he's going well if we ally with Prussia and Russia and invade Madagascar, we can turn on France. I mean, it's <laughs> – but the biggest difference, of course, is that so, – so most of Italy, minus Venice and Rome, was uh, unified in 1860-61. Cavour died three months after the unification, and he was by far the most able politician in all of Italy. Bismarck ran Germany for something like 20 years after its unification. Mm. I, 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 I wonder if that's the big difference. Mm, yeah, I mean, would you say, I mean, if you were to compare the two figures side by side, do you think that, I mean, say, like, was, the, actually, probably a better question would be, do you know of the two of them ever interacting with each other? Because I know that Italy, once it was unified, I mean, a key part of Italian history was the Franco-Prussian War, because it was only when French troops were evacuated from Rome in 1870 that, the the problem is Cavour died in uh, mid eighteen sixty one, so mm. so nine years before the Franco Prussian War of eighteen seventy. Cool. Um, I mean, Bismarck would only have really have gotten to. I mean, he was ambassador to Russia by in, in eighteen sixty one. So I suppose, yeah. I mean, there wouldn't really have been much. I just like to think of these. We, I was talking earlier in a in a talk episode, collaboration episode rather with uh, Travis 
about the great man of history idea. Do you think that applies to Cavour with 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 what he did for Italy, or do you think there is there is a good bit that could still be could still be done? I mean, do you think he's in need of a, a proper, maybe even a Western biography? Do you think there's more that should be said about him? Yes, I think there is. Town unification is tricky because I, I imagine also the German unification is tricky because you look back and it looks inevitable. How could it have ever been any other way? Mm. I mean. Uh, when I was born, Germany was still two separate countries, east and west, but not for very long. And But looking back, I'm thinking, how could it have ever been even two countries? There's always been one country. Yeah. You know, so it, it, even recent history is hard to believe uh, because you're so used to that everything is the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, America has 50 states. What are you, insane? I mean, <laughs> you know, 50 is the right number. With Cavour, what I'll say is this. There were a lot of other people, so um, Garibaldi. Uh, the famous, the hero of two worlds, the Gandhi of his era. I don't mean in his philosophy, I mean how well known he was. He was known all over the world, incredible, more famous than any of us realize. Mazzini, who was also very famous, uh, the classic conspirator trying, uh, believing in the Italian spirit. There were a lot of important people, but, and I don't want to give Cavour too much credit in that he was not a true believer. He was, a, he was from Piedmont. That's a country in the northwest of Italy. He was from Piedmont. He was a Piedmontese patriot, not an Italian patriot. The whole thing for him was expanding Piedmont. It's not very hard to cast the Italian unification as the conquest of Italy by Piedmont with with, with significant French help. Um, That being said, when you look at – when Cavour was in charge, Italy had problems, but Italy lurched from success to success. I mean they kept snatching – Victory from the jaws of defeat because of his crazy gambles that paid off. He he, he had a workaholic. He hated delegating. He surrounded himself with yes men, prime minister and minister of finance and minister of foreign affairs and minister Mm. of justice. I mean, (laughs) wow. So so things were falling apart because there weren't enough people. But at the same time, he was a genius. And perhaps the best argument for him being a great man of history is. That when he died, it wasn't until Mussolini that Italy found somebody who was as capable. I don't want to cast Mussolini in a positive light, yeah. but, but you do want to respect that the man was form- – maybe formidable is the word I want. Mussolini sure. was a formidable human being, not a good one, but formidable, mm. and so was Cavour. And it was a good – what is that? 60 years between the two of them, between the two of their, pa- their, their you know, peaks. Sure, yeah, yeah. That's that's very interesting, yeah. And the, of course, the, the great man of history idea it, it runs rampant in the twentieth century, let alone the nineteenth. Yes, yes. So your your podcast, which obviously I should have plugged at the start because that's the way these things normally run. I think it's because it's the last one. We're kind of the last collaboration episode. I've kind of the wheels have come off at this stage, but <laughs> I'd like to think that with. With your examination of Italian history, your very in-depth examination, by the way, and the depth that you go into and the evident research that you put into the podcast, and this isn't just me kissing up because you're on the podcast. <laughs> I mean, you know you know that I think it's, it's, not only, it's not only a really well done podcast, but it's a very important story that you are telling because it's almost like the counter story to the German one in that it's like a series of, of missed opportunities and big disappointments. And that sounds terrible. I don't want to make it sound like it's a, it's a tragic story that you tell in your podcast. But May I say it's a tragic epilogue? Yes, yeah. Like, to, to me, the, 
the Italian unification is in a way a sad story, but I think that the the first Italo-Ethiopian War really does epitomize, like it, it encapsulates that because it's a it's a, it's Italy's most notable foray into kind of with the exception of their annexation in Libya that would come like 10 years later or so. But this this act here, it was really their big foray and it, it failed epically. And I think that really, it says a lot about the experience. I'm working this weekend, in fact, on my next episode, episode 49, titled To Be Determined, <clears throat> which will be released, <laughs> presumably, before your episode goes out. Well. As slow as I am, as slow as I am these days. <laughs> um, I hope I'll get it out. It's been a while. So, and so... I'm wrapping up the Italian unification. We're, we're in the 1860s. Um, we're at the very end of the of the of the series, and so we're, we're coming to the big so what questions, and that that ties into what you just said, which is you look at Italy, you look at history, you say, well, it had Rome, it had the Renaissance and the papacy. It was this big deal, and then it was fragmented for a long time. And then it comes back together, and it looks like it's going to be it, like it should be another great power you know another another france another germany another russia another britain it kind of is i mean it's it's always one foot in the door it's never quite a great power with a capital g capital p but it, it's always big enough that you have to pay attention to it mm-hmm. uh, one of the books i was reading put it really well for those listening to my series massimo de Zelio, famous italian politician was musing that the problem here was that the people behind Italian unification were trying to reclaim something. They were trying to recreate their past greatness. But Italy never really existed until 1870. The Romans were in Italy, but they didn't consider themselves Italian. Sure. The Renaissance was full of fragmentation. There was very little Italian identity. So the Italians were trying to recreate past greatness. They were trying to reclaim what they thought they had lost rather than trying to make something new, to achieve new greatness. Mm. Case in point, the city of Rome, when Italy unified in 1860-61, they did not have Rome. The Pope still had that. They didn't get it until 1870. And they wanted it because, I mean, it's Rome. Sure. It's full of ancient mystique and power. Europeans love to love ancient Rome. It's a powerful symbol and... Massimo de Zelio argued in the 1960s, a huge mistake because you're buying into all the mythos. You're buying into all the symbols, and you're living in the shadow of it. Right. So the Italians kept saying they needed, they needed this baptism of blood. They needed something to tie them all together, so they kept looking for wars to win. <laughs> they fought the Austrians. They fought in 1866 and lost. They were on the winning side even though they lost their own battles. Italo-Ethiopian War, this is another case. Italy was financially, socially, linguistically, politically fractured. Uh, there were lots of problems, mass emigration. This is the period where millions of Italians come to the United States. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because conditions in the South are so, so terrible. And this is another fun fact. The North conquered the South politically, and the South conquered the North gastronomically. Um, <laughs> Italian food, if, if you think Italian food and you're not from Italy, you're thinking of Southern Italian food. Pasta. Yeah. Pizza, that's, I mean, yeah, that's Southern. Northern food is especially, uh, I'm generalizing. Northern <laughs> food tends to be a little more German, a little, right. little more stews, more butter. So, uh, and the, re- the reason why the U.S. has so much pizza and pasta is because we're full of Southern Italians. Yeah, um, yeah, that's fascinating. So the Italian-European war was, well, you know what we need? We need a war. And <laughs> you know what? It's, it's going to be cheap, it's going to be quick, and it's going to be easy. The frustration of Italy with 
feeling that they haven't lived up to their promise. Yes. Um, that, that's, I mean, like, literally, that summarizes how I felt about it, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the frustration of, of, of feeling that they, they should be more. And a lot of that stems from the, as I said, it's not a terrible idea to think of the unification as the conquest of Italy by Piedmont. But it's not entirely fair, and I'm not, I don't mean to be flippant about it, but just that that's a, a useful perspective because it, it helps to explain why they kept, you know, 30 years later, or yeah, 30 years later, kept feeling that they, like they needed a unifying event. They didn't come together willingly, really. They kind of, it's all kind of sort of stuff. Jammed together, lightning quick, and they had a language, a bureaucratic system, a system of laws, and an army shoved down their throats and said, <laughs> you're all Italians now, pay your taxes. Yeah, yeah, sure. I get what you mean. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like a recipe for success, all right. And it's certainly not the same story. I mean, it's unification, but it's on a different like a different model completely to the German case. Yeah, Piedmont was often called the Prussia of Italy. It was, uh, yes. And uh, if you want to go if you want to take that further during the the, the period I was looking at 1914, the the Serbian Black Hand, they actually had a their magazine or their or their pamphlet if you like was called uh Piedmont uh because of, of that they 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 thought that they would be the Ser- Serbia would be the the Prussia if you like of a new greater Slav state. Um huh. yeah so that that was That's a, an analogy that has been totally lost as history. Mm, mm, it's a fascinating one though isn't it the, the yeah. way it it evidently inspired other other like even people in the black hand who thought themselves you couldn't you couldn't say irredentist or or even or like I suppose I don't know, but I like the idea that they will be the founding state of a new super state. It was really inspired by instances like these. It's very interesting to compare the unification of these different places because you know there are Italians and there are Germans, but being an Italian means something different than being a German, and this isn't a better or worse thing. It's mm. just different, and in surprising ways. That uh, I have a friend of the family who are Italian, and we were visiting them, and they're telling us a story. They were up in the South Tyrol. This is an area that was part of Switzerland. Don't quote me on the exact place. It was northern Italy. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the, the, the name and the history of the place. And the, the, the dominant language there is German. Something like 80% of people have German as their first language. So one of the, the, the young children of my, uh, my friend is up there at a ski resort, and she's saying, oh, look at all these Germans. These are all Italian citizens. I mean yeah. – <laughs> you know, th- their grandparents were Italian citizens, and it's just, but oh no, these are Germans. Yeah, or or, or the disconnect between north and south. Mm, oh, it's, and it's still. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm. That's still a, a, an issue today, is it? The, it, it? It's a very large issue that the the, the two halves do not like each other. I they believe there there's even political parties. I mean, there is a was there a northern a northern league or something? Yeah, the, the, the Lega Nord. Even though there's there isn't a movement for there isn't a strong movement for actual secession. You're very right to point out that there are political parties in Italy that are really unhappy about the, the way uh, things are going with the uh, north-south split. Well, I suppose in a way it's an unnatural creation. I mean, you would th- you think looking at it, yes, it's a, an Italian subcontinent like the country. It should be unified because it, that would it, make it, sense. It looks right on the map. Yeah, yeah. It looks tidy. Just like we like our history looking tidy, yeah, we like the yeah. map looking tidy. So. Get get together, North and South. Cooperate already. <laughs> but uh, but the two halves had dramatically different histories because so that central and northern Italy 
is what had the Renaissance. Uh, you know, that's that's your 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 Venice's, your Rome's, your Tuscany, Florence, Milan, Genoa, Bologna. That's the area where you had all the little city states fighting and feuding. So that's one kind of shared history up there. The South was ruled by actually Norman kings. You know, so the Normans invaded uh, England. They also uh, invaded uh, Sicily and southern Sicily. Italy. Yeah. Yep. Sicily, the island, and southern Italy split for a while, uh, for a couple hundred years. But nonetheless, but other than that, like the southern half of Italy was a single unit, a monolithic block, a royally – you know, the king with a royal court, very mm. top down. So when the two get thrown together at high speed in, the, uh, in 1860, it's a, it's a culture clash – that almost nobody in the North predicted because nobody in the North had been to the South. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, correct me if I'm wrong as well, but was it people from the North that mostly wanted unification? Yes. So this is something I'll talk about in my final wrap-up episode. Figuring out, nailing down who wanted what is tricky, but Southerners, especially the mass of Southern peasants, didn't care. Uh, the joke that's often told, I don't know if it's really true, but... A foreign observer from, from France or England was in Naples during the unification, and they heard people shouting, L'Italia, L'Italia. <laughs> and, uh, he, and then they would turn to him and say, so wait, what does L'Italia mean? That's the name of the king's wife, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, her, name, her name is Talia, L'Italia, right? That they wanted, free, they wanted an end to crippling taxation. They wanted – they had local scores to settle. The, the mafia, uh, though I don't know if it existed by that name quite yet, but the idea of the mafia, of um, strong men wielding local power, was already a big deal. Mm. People had local scores to settle. They weren't interested in some grand unification. That was much more a northern idea, often well-intentioned. People thinking, that, you know, this will make a better Italy. It'll be a resurgence of manhood and virility. You know, this baptism of blood will become a great nation and people will have to respect us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they spend a lot less time thinking about, well, so they speak what is effectively a different language. It's a dialect of Italian different enough that they're mutually unintelligible. Wow. They don't speak the same language. They have a vastly different tr legal tradition and, in fact, a somewhat more modern legal tradition because when the French invaded the South, they brought the Napoleonic Code and sure. updated the South's laws. They have different uh, economy. They have a very protectionist economy. So when the North, which is all that free trade, came in and lowered all the barriers, southern industry, which was admittedly still a uh, uh, small scale, just <clears throat> collapsed. Oh, yeah. But, but So I have heard your original episode on the Italian-Ethiopian War. I have not heard your updated one. Could you tell me a little bit more about what's, what's changed between the two? Well, I think really when I did it the first time around, uh, uh, the common theme of Bismarck running through the the episodes. I mean, the it was just a bit ridiculous that I talked. Oh yeah, so you, you, you're a gigantic man crush on Bismarck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's on a T-shirt now, Benjamin. It's it's like once he fails his T-shirts has. It says, uh, "Always be yourself, unless you can be Bismarck, then always be Bismarck." And I think <laughs> that's some words to, words to live by, really. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was very happy with Rob over at History Tees sorted me out with that. So yeah, check out, check out when diplomacy fails as uh, t-shirts. That's that's a handy <laughs> plug right there. Yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it, it uh -huh. was an ins an inspired idea. Really, it's a testament to how how much he kind of 
was the chancellor of the early stages of the podcast really he was kind yeah. of in the he was kind of in the background and i think that's because i found him so inherently fascinating but it wasn't a very good excuse to kind of bring him in when i should have been talking about the actual war in the episode and i think it always that war the episode 19 always stood out to me as one of those ones i'd like to redo again structure not just for the sake of the audio glitches that went on in it but also structure wise i didn't feel like it was very well done and that was because really it was a rush job and it was christmas eve and i just wanted to be done with the whole thing which is never a good way to go around but yeah more, more to the point of your question the the way it's done now i like to think that it focuses more on the issues at hand it actually looks at the impact that this war had on the italian psyche and actually as well i didn't make this point in in that episode but the later italian actions such as the invasion of libya in in 1911 in september 1911 this is kind of seen not as the first domino i don't want to make because i i just hate the idea of the first world war being inevitable but the uh, a, con- a contributing factor sure yeah i would i would say contributing factor yeah just because the the fact once once the italian once the invasion of libya happens basically then the balkan states get get all up in arms and they all decide oh yeah we're going to we're going to invade the the baltic states because balkan balkan yeah balkan not baltic Jamie mac uh, <laughs> we're going to invade the <laughs> we're going to invade the balkan states because the ottomans are like depressed and demoralized after losing libya and then when they all get emboldened after those balkan wars which only end in like June of 1913. That's when like Austria-Hungary is like, oh, what's going on here? The Serbia is way bigger now than it used to be. And then the assassination of the Archduke happens. So it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy of we were right to be worried all along. So I don't want to try and argue that all those events were inherently connected, but certainly the fact that Italy failed in Ethiopia made it feel like it had to have a consolation prize. And in that consolation prize that they they chose Libya pretty much... (laughs) Italy was constantly seeking to prove itself on the world stage, which kind of helps to explain in some ways why fascism was so attractive. Because mm. this is pre-World War II. World War II has not happened yet. You don't know about all the horrors of fascism and what it led to. You know, it's 1930, and you're looking around and going, wow, so all these weak, puny democratic states are having these massive issues, the Great Depression. Uh, you know, there's, uh, France is tearing itself apart. The U.S. is ignoring everybody. You know, S- uh, Spain is a god-awful mess. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and fascism looks kind of attractive, strong leader, someone who's going to come in and sort this mess out and, and, and give us the respect we have – we've been hurting for for at that point what it would have been 60 years, 70 years. Sure, um, yeah, yeah. So it, it's not hard to see why somebody would have looked to a Mussolini because fascism was brand new. At one point early in his rise, Hitler wrote to Mussolini, you know, a fan letter saying, hey, you know, I, I love you. I love your work. Could you send me a signed photo? <laughs> in, also, in, in, in redoing the episode. What- cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com weightloss weight loss. That's PlushCare.com weightloss weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Was there anything that surprised you uh, that you hadn't learned the first time around? When I did it the first time, I don't think in my head I realized how big a deal it was. Now, this kind of gets into sensitive issues of racism and all that kind of thing, but ah, we might as well just jump right into it. Um, the, <laughs> the idea that... We're all aware that Europeans of this era were, were racist in a... were prejudiced in a way that's hard to understand today. For all the problems we so. have, they were proud of their prejudices. They did not see their problems... As problems, they said, you know, this is this is scientific fact. This is the way it is. We, in fact, are just better. Yeah, yeah, and like it's proven because of our our historical experience. Look how powerful Europe is. Therefore, and because, and because the cubic capacity of our skull is greater. Oh or, my goodness! Yeah, or, I know. <laughs> or, or, or because our frontal lobes are larger, and that's clearly the seat of reason. Or oh. even because our diet is morally superior because potatoes are somehow better than rice <laughs> uh, i mean but, but it's it's kind of shortcomings of of halfway done science you look at stuff and you say well it's self-evident we're better there must be now let's explain why we're better mm. the, the proof's in the pudding we're in charge therefore we're better yeah yeah and you kind of you jumped into that handily for me so i don't have to run through it because it always <laughs> makes me cringe out of my skin i mean i was talking about this even in relation to the asian the racism towards like asian like asia in general i was talking about this with mark painter in the history from the history of the 20th century podcast collaboration episode on the russo-japanese war and he made the point that the it was just bigotry was just so rampant it was it wasn't abnormal, it was normal, and that always fascinated me, people thinking and being geared towards just seeing people as inherently inferior. When Italy got such a bloody nose from the war, I think I found that really, like, I was satisfied on behalf of the Ethiopians because they were yeah, proving it, Italy wrong. Funny feeling, but I know what you mean, that, that t- t- take that, you bigots. Yeah, yeah, and of course, like, the the thing I found most hilarious was that in order to justify Italy losing, you had suddenly all these scientists were kind of like, oh, well, as you can see, the, the Ethiopians are actually a race of the white man who moved into Ethiopia and founded the first Abyssinian Empire, and the descendants of Ethiopians are merely tanned white men with these same yeah. capabilities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. you know, don't worry, it's okay, it doesn't count, because yeah. they're actually yeah. white. Yeah, it's kind of hard to, to relate yeah, I to. Know, I, know. I mean. It's kind of like a first world, third world division, but mm. explicitly racial. Sure. That, that, you, know, you know, if a big country gets beaten by a small country, that's embarrassing because, because of the socioeconomic differences, not because their skin color is different. Yeah. So <laughs> one thing I've mentioned a couple of times in my podcast is there was, a, there was a saying in Italy. So, for example, let's say you were from uh, Milan. You'd say Africa begins at Tuscany. I mean, <laughs> or, and you're, and if you're in Tuscany – 
Africa begins at Rome. If you're in Rome, Africa begins at Naples. In a strange way, there's more truth to that in a non-offensive way, simply because southern Italy was much more tied into um, Arab invasions and Arab trade routes and uh, North African peoples, just historically, economically, genetically. But they were making a value judgment about it. They were saying that basically, you know, civilization ends here. Yeah, Um, yeah. Well, so one reason why this particular incident may have hurt the Italians more than it would have hurt anybody else is because for hundreds of years, there'd been this insult tossed around that Italians can't fight. I mean, and this is something that by the mid-1800s was making every Italian twitch. Uh-huh. It was, they had this built-in inferiority complex because the rest of Europe, well, you know, oh, Italians, all oh, this hot blood and Latin type kind of thing. Mm. Oh, you know, th- th- they're good with art and they're good with music, uh, you know, but they're, they're so, so hot-headed and, and you know, they, lo- they love women and pleasure and wine. They don't work and they can't fight and they can't <laughs> fight. And, and, and which in a very superficial sense, if you look at their history, it seems to bear that out. But if you look at all deeper, that's not really true. If you look at, say, Giuseppe Garibaldi and, and his volunteers in various wars in the 1800s, the Italians could fight very well if they could defeat larger forces, very well disciplined. In fact, the southern Italian army, parts of it were very well trained. The issue is that Italy, time and again, had hysterically bad leadership. Just awful – I mean, so it's Piedmont, Kinder and Piedmont, northwest Italy. Their dream for 200 years had been to take Lombardy, the – North Central Italy, area around Milan. Mm. They've been dreaming to take it for hundreds of years. Hmm. And in the 1800s, they had a couple chances. And you know what they never got? Maps. They <laughs> never bothered to get maps of the country next door. They were always short on boots and belt buckles and guns. And the, the top-level leadership was almost always just terrible. So you end up with it looking like Italians can't fight simply because – for mostly institutional reasons, sure, the leadership refused to learn. Does that change? Did that change much after after that period? Short answer: No. Uh, <laughs> I mean, look at the Italo-Ethiopian War. Yeah, uh, yeah. World War One's not fair because everybody had outdated leadership. World War Two, you have the same kind of thing. That you, so in North Africa, some of the uh, the Italian units were considered as good as the German units were fighting alongside them. There are plenty of good Italian soldiers. And so, you know, the Mussolini ordered Greece invaded in the middle of the harvest season. So yeah. half the Italian army was, was at home. So you, you have things like that. As for the very modern era, uh, I, I don't know. And on some level, it might date back to that what I was talking about when we opened this, about Italy trying to reclaim something rather than make something new. Mm. That that Ital- the Italians in, of certain eras, uh, rather, let me, let me rephrase, the Italian leaders of certain eras have kind of felt like the world is ours for the taking. All we need to do is reach out and take it, because everybody else is. <laughs> Ethiopian War, the Libyan War, World War One, World War Two, and, and even the stuff during my podcast that we, you know, all those stupid Austrians, we can take them, we can take them. <laughs> and they can't, because... They don't invest in the upper level, uh, the, 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 the training. They don't invest in the organization. And the funny thing is that, that Piedmont was supposed to be the Prussia of Italy. It mm. placed a long military tradition, whereas the rest of Italy, had, uh, for the most part, had no military tradition whatsoever at that point. 
because during the Renaissance, they mostly hired mercenaries, and that was a couple hundred years before that. And <clears> since then, they've been dominated by foreign powers. So they didn't need armies. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very easy to chalk it up to, oh, it's just, it's just those disorganized southern Italians. It's the Mediterranean people. They can't do anything. That's, that's an old hat. That's very easy to say and very, very shallow. Mm. The fighting quality of the people is probably identical. It's the specific historical events that have led leadership to make bad decisions. I see. Yeah, yeah. The unfortunate thing for Italy was that there was a, a plethora of bad decisions, really. Yeah, yeah. When they, when they lose to the Ethiopians, the old, you know, they, they, in the back of their heads, they can all hear, Italians can't fight. Mm. And so it makes them even matter. That matter than it would have made, uh, I don't know, France or England or Germany feel probably because they weren't so sensitive. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the Italians, I feel like they had something to prove, especially with the scramble for Africa ongoing. Yeah, perfect way to put it. They had something to prove, or at least they felt they had something to prove. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that led them to time and again make mistakes because they, they wanted to prove it so badly they were willing to ignore everything else. It just seemed right. We're Italians, right? We're the, we're the heirs to, to the Romans. We're the heirs to the great states of the Renaissance. You know, we we need this. Mm, yeah, yeah. Oh, big time. And I think there, <laughs> the the kind of eagerness to eagerness to get what they needed didn't really it, it didn't translate itself into doing the research beforehand and seeing that. Oh, yeah. Ethiopia, yep. Ethiopia is actually not a very easy country to march over, and they can field an army of about one hundred thousand, but they are supplied by uh, Russian firearms and. They are supplied with uh, British money and they have got like French uh, relationships. And I mean, on the one hand, I don't want to make the Italians seem like they were right by trying to argue after they lost that, oh, the Ethiopians, they're actually white men. But as far as African states went at that point, the the Ethiopians had gone some way towards adopting Western practices, even in the use of firearms that came from like western companies essentially i don't know exactly which firearms they would have used but certainly their their practices were not like you you wouldn't look at the way that they operated their state and think to yourself oh yeah like what what a what a backward way i mean given them another 20 years they would have been modeled essentially like a kind of europe in africa almost exactly it it puts the lie to the idea that this is a genetic difference no this is a Cultural, historical, economic, and political difference that, yeah, the the Ethiopians were adapting and modernizing, and that's what it comes down to, modernization. It's the same thing with Japan in 1904, is it? The Russo-Japanese War? Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. How did white people lose to Asians? This is, oh, my God. This is insane. We cannot handle this. You know, oh, my stars. Take the fainting couch. And it's, it's the same thing. It's just, well, what do you expect? You gave, people are modernizing. They've looked at what you've done. They've taken the parts they liked and left the parts they didn't like. They have modern weapons and modern training. What's, mm. you know, what did you expect? Yeah, well, yeah. Cl- clearly something different. So it's a, it's, a, it's a wake-up call. If you were to say, put your finger on maybe a, a result or, or something that it, I we said that the Italians felt they had something to prove, or like they thought they did at least. Do you think they learned anything from this experience? So I'll say that, that 20th century Italian history is not my, uh, my strong suit. I specialize in 1790 to 1870. Right. Um, 
I really don't know. I, I think that World War I would have been the transformative event. We all know about Western Front in World War I. Sure. Not ninety percent of us know about the Eastern Front in World War One. Eighty percent know about you know, the uh, the Lawrence of Arabia Front of World War One. <laughs> the Italian Front is is little known because very little happened, or sorry, very little changed. They they had I forget there was some valley or gorge or chasm or something the Austrians and Italians fought over for three years, and I, I can't remember the name of the place, but. By the by, nineteen eighteen, they were on to the fifteenth battle of the whatever, um, <laughs> because wow. and, and apparently you know and they and you know they apparently still find frozen bodies and artillery in the thaws, in the mountains they were fighting in. So so presumably people learned some lessons from that. But I can tell you a, a little bit about the, the politics of it. Uh, sure. So Italy Italy had a complicated way of doing business politically. So they had a Westminster style. Parliament, more or less. I mean, they had a, a lower house and an upper house and a king. When Cavour was in charge, so he was in charge uh, in, in 1852, I think, to 1861 when he died. He was the giant. Everybody else was small next to him. He was the smartest man in the room. He knew more about politics than anybody else on the peninsula. Now, as time went on, other people got was catching up some, but he was still the best politician because he'd been studying this stuff as a hobby since he was a young man. Sure. So. He was the most important person, and political parties didn't really emerge in a strong way. There were left-leaning people and right-leaning people, but they didn't have modern political parties, which you might go, well, fantastic. That's great, right? Political parties suck, or they're the enemy of progress. Well, they definitely have their downsides, but they make governing possible. Mm. Let's say you want to pass a bill. You want to, I don't know, a big a hot-button item then was divorce. Should divorce be... A, not only legal, but should it be controlled by the state, not the church? Okay, so this is a big hot-button issue, and you take it into parliament, and without parties, you really don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. You, presume, you, know, you don't want to present bills that you don't think are going to pass. When you bring a bill to a vote, you should have an idea of whether it's going to win or not, or whether it pass or not. Yeah. And so the problem was that because there were no strong parties, every time you needed something done, you needed to glad-hand your way around everybody make horse trades with every individual member of parliament from every little region. Oh, you need, you need some money, you need, a, you need a favor, you need a cousin in the job, fine. And so and Cavour was this giant who could control it all, so he made it work. After him, they fell into a political system called transformismo. And what that basically is, whenever there was a crisis, the prime minister would be forced to resign, and a new coalition would be formed. Mm-hmm. But the coalition was basically the same coalition every time. It would just shift a little to the left, or a little to the right. Um, <laughs> it was a centrist government. There was one major political party in the center and then fringe parties, right. which is a real problem because it means you have no alternatives. Yeah, yeah. So the same people keep – the same crowd keeps being in charge. Yes, it did flip back and forth, and eventually they did kind of have two parties, but it was still the same crowd over and over and over again. One of the problems you see and why this relates to your question is – they never got fl- – they very rarely got fl- fresh blood. In right. It was, always, yeah. it was always the same crowd. So Francesco Crispi, who was the, the prime minister during the Italian-Ethiopian War, I think, yeah. he'd been around forever. <laughs> off and on, off and on. It's a quirk of the, the history of the politics of the place. Yeah. So, and what that leads to are, are the refusal to learn, the feeling that you need to prove something because you don't get meaningful change at the top 
So there's no push for changes below. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. An interesting case can be made for the impact that that fractured system had on, well, I suppose it is fractured in one sense, but on the other, it just kind of never changes. It's all together. Yeah, unhealthy. Yeah. The big impact that had on Italy's performance internationally, because like you said, the state that it was in, it made it almost compelled them to act in a way that they thought would shore up their popularity and maybe make citizens feel like they were getting getting a good deal when they really weren't getting a good deal at all yeah yeah it was a it was a not a very responsive government uh, it, was, it was it got very corrupt all oh, right wow <laughs> it doesn't paint we we talked about this before but it doesn't paint a very uh, optimistic picture uh, do you think that italian history i know you said your your forte isn't so much the 20th century but do you think we should see Italian history as a tragedy, or do we? Do you think we should see it as a? So one thing is an excellent question. Uh, one thing I, I, I always try to remember when doing my podcast is this isn't my history. I'm my wife is Italian distantly. I'm not really Italian at all. This isn't my history. I'm telling on some level. I mean, it's all of our story. It's, mm. a, it's a shared human story. But in another sense, it's not quite my story. So I don't try and sugarcoat anything. Mm. I, but at the same time. I have to be respectful, and and it's not hard. I mean, bending over backwards, but it's just a matter of – I'm never trying to make fun of anybody uh, except maybe King Victor Emmanuel II. I, I don't have a high opinion of him. <laughs> but but other than that, I mean I'm, this is a real story of, of real people, and a question of what does it mean to be Italian is, is a complicated question that I can't answer. Is Italian history a tragedy? I, I would say that on a high political level, on a great man of history level, on a, that there are – Themes and um, and traps Italy seems to keep falling into. Sure. Um, to be honest, a lot of this was because even through the 20th century, Italy was not always a master of its own fate. It was kind of the little brother great power. I mean, it was it was a unlike say Spain, which was almost not a great power at all by the by the by the uh, late 1800s. Italy was big enough you couldn't ignore it. It was important enough economically, militarily financially you had to pay attention to it but it just never had the same clout that germany or france it did yeah so a lot of what happened in italian history was determined elsewhere other people for hundreds of years before and even after italy was carved up to suit the needs of the great power victors rather than a tragedy i would say that i'm specifically not talking about modern italian history because i simply don't know much about it i know the outline but not much more than that but between 1815 and 1950, the story of Italy is the failure to achieve what everybody felt in their heart should have been achievable. But which when you look back with the benefit of hindsight and more modern understanding of economics, might not have been there at all. Italy was a, was a linguistically, politically, historically fractured place, and the expectation that – they would just merge together magically yeah. and, and form this you know, strong, virile, strapping Italian man was unrealistic. And so, the, so there's a sense of disillusionment because it failed to live up to these incredibly unrealistic dreams. Mm-hmm. And so you have the Italian diaspora, people leaving because they're starving, coming to America or South America. So it, it's a story of struggle. It's a story of trying to achieve – what uh, trying to live up to the promise because on paper as i said it looks like they should be a great power full stop i mean you know they're like france or germany yeah 
but there's more to it than that. And I think a lot of damage was done early on. Understandably, I mean, I don't think there was maybe a right choice. The country was unified and immediately started fracturing. And so the government said, well, we need to keep it together. Quick, get some glue and start and mold, sticking it all together <laughs> and, and forcing everything to be the same. One yeah. language, one set of laws, one set of economic policies. And this did a lot of damage, particularly in the South, uh, because it, one size did not fit all in this country. Actually, before, I'll stop rambling in a moment, but <laughs> very tempting if you only look at this in a cursory manner to make a value judgment. Oh, those Italians. You know, why don't they feel more Italian? Why don't they have more national pride? It's, it's a silly argument. By analogy, the European Union. Okay, I mean, in the future, we might look back on it and, and, and say, well, oh, you, you, know, you foolish Germans, why didn't you have more EU spirit? I, I picked Germany at random just because they're big. Um, I'm not, uh, that, that's, that's not a, a subtle hint about anything. You know, or, or you're part of the European Union. Would you say that you are Irish first or European Unionist first? Oh, jeepers, Irish. I mean, there's no que- but like, there's no question about that. I mean, maybe some French or Germans might want us to think that we have European values, which to an extent is arguably true, but you couldn't take, you might want to put, you can put the Ireland in the European Union, but you can't make European Union citizens out of Irish citizens, if that makes sense, probably doesn't. And, and so <laughs> if, you, if, if you take that, your response, and replace EU with Italy... Mm. And Ireland with, say, uh, Florence or, or Milan, it's that. Who the, who the heck are we to judge people for not feeling more Italian? This person was raised in, in – uh, um, once again, I'm not speaking about modern Italian. I'm thinking more 1800s. Sure. Um, person was raised in Milan and Lombardy. They have their own local dialect, their own history, their own saints and so on. And who are we to judge them for not feeling like something else? Mm. That. Mm. that that it's it, it, just like asking someone from Ireland to have their primary identity be a European. Yeah. It's important, but it, you, it's, that's not how it works. No, not uh, at all. At least not quickly, whereas in the United States, uh, you know, in, our, in our early history, you know, George Washington was a Virginian practically first. I mean that your, the state was at, in many cases more important than the national identity. Now over you – know, after a civil war and lots of time – that's faded. And the, you know, the joke is Texas is supposed to be different, but there is still a little bit of that. But it's no nothing like it used to be. I mean, I'm an American first and a Marylander second. You know, and Maryland as a far second. I mean, I love Maryland, fantastic place to live. But that's because it's a great place to live, not because I have any particular stirring at the sight of the Maryland flag. I mean, it's not a. <laughs> Yeah, you're not a Maryland nationalist or anything Ex- like that. Exactly. So hopefully that can help explain some of the question of identity, at least as, I, as I've been able to suss it out. Sure. That, yeah. that it's not a matter of disloyalty. It's a matter of who do you really – who are you deep down? And you can't just come in and tell somebody, you're Italian now. You mm. feel Italian. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what people tried to do, and it never really worked. So they kept looking for that baptism of blood that would do it, and that never really worked. So it, it's, a, it's a complex question. Yeah, I think it is. And I think, do you know what, I think it's worsened by the fact that the German case that keeps popping up happened virtually parallel to it. And the yes. German case was a success. And I think like understanding history is realizing that just because it's unification doesn't mean it's unification. I mean, right. it, in a sense, the German and Italian cases, they're 
I mean, it sounds obvious that they would be apples and oranges because they are two different peoples, two different countries, etc., etc. But when people like look at them, they're like, well, why did the German case, like, it's not even a case of like, why did the German case work? It's like, why did the Italian case fail? Almost. It's like, it's all the Italians fault. They should have been more Italian. But then you look at it and it's like, it, it's a totally natural reaction. Yeah, very high handed. You know, why, why couldn't you have been more Italian? Because he's not Italian. He's not more Italian because, you know, Italy doesn't mean anything to him. Mm. He was one, one day someone with a gun showed up and said, you're Italian, speak you know, speak the way we speak or else. Uh, I'm trying to remember um, an actor, famous actor from Venice. can't remember his name. I think he's, he's, he's tall. He's contemporary. Uh, he's, I think he's older. But he once said that, ah, Italian, our first foreign language. That, <laughs> that, that at home, he spoke the Venetian dialect, which is somewhat mutually intelligible. You know, it's not a totally different language, but I mean, but it's not the same language. You do need to learn the other one in a class. Well, that's a very, it's a very interesting way to talk. And I think before, just before we kind of wrap it up, I mean, we've actually already asked the kind of traditional wrap-up questions I like to ask about the whole kind of, oh, could you give us your passing thought on it? But I think that whole, the whole kind of look into even how history has played out since then and how Italy very much today, with the with the likes of the Nord League the, or the, the Northern League, the League of Nord kind of thing, like it's it very much has inherited its history from the period of history that you're looking at now. It's always, it's frustrating. So, you know how you said you don't like when people say the domino, World War One. I, I also don't like to do it myself sometimes when you say, oh, well, this this is where the modern world began. You're like the the, the concert of Europe, you know, the, the, the Congress of Vienna, 1815. That created the modern Europe. Well, I mean, you can pick any major event. You can say, oh yes, this led this laid the fault lines for World War One. You can see World War One from this. Mm. It would be oversimplifying to say, well, oh yes, modern Italy can totally be explained. If you listen to my podcast, you will understand modern Italian history. <laughs> it's, it's, but at the same time, but if you don't know that period, you have a very hard time because, well, simply, it's how Italy went from being about eleven countries to one country, yeah. and. And the, the, the details, the devil in the details of how that happened is going to be repeated for the next hundred years. All the little mistakes that were made up front are going to be magnified uh, in, in their history. I think that, that gives us a good, a good rounding off comment there. I want to thank you very much for coming on, Benjamin Ashwell. And I want to just give you a chance to properly plug yourself now. Where, where huh. can listeners go if they want to find the Italian Unification Podcast? So you can find us online at TalkingHistoryPodcast.com or on iTunes, just search Talking History, Italian Unification. Anybody who's interested can find it. Let me know what you think. It's a project I really enjoyed doing. And what fun fact you guys may not know, Zach here helped preview my early script and recording. I went to him for help when I was starting to podcast. He was, one, he was an inspiration for Aww. me to do it. So, well, yeah, uh, as I'm getting close to ending the Italian Unification series, well, this is a good chance to say thank you for your support. It, it really did help to have somebody on the inside tell you, well, yeah, this is a good microphone. You know, uh, don't let that, don't let that. Oh, and here, and when you do iTunes, make sure to do it like this. So thank you very much for your help. Oh, it was my pleasure. I mean, I like to think that podcasters can pay for it. Like I said, you had a great story to tell. You told it very well. And I mean, David Crowther in the History of England really helped me out. He gave me my first uh, introduction to the world of podcasting through. Bannockburn, right? Yes, Bannockburn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as he said, I was helping him out because it, Saved him having to tell the story of when the English got walloped by the Scots, 
thought was a brilliant way to put it. But he's a very funny guy. Yes, he is. Oh, very, very fond of David. He's done a lot for when diplomacy fails, but like humbled and flattered, really. That that you would accredit that to me. Don't don't let it take away from the fact that you do have a very good, very good product yourself, and you've done a very good job yourself in bringing it across well, to a wide audience. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. I'm expecting a call on your 10-year anniversary, and we, we, and we can do this again in, in 3D VR. Yes, yeah, that's, that's the dream. I'll be doing 10 weeks to run a while Because surely the future's going to kick in between now and then. Well, one would think so, but who knows what the future holds? Who knows what the future holds for When Diplomacy Fails or Benjamin Ashwell? Thanks very much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me, and I look forward to uh, hearing this episode when it, uh, hearing the uh, remastered Italo-Ethiopian episode when it comes out. Cool. Cheers. Alrighty, what did we think of that? So Benjamin Ashwell and I talked over a whole load of topics, a whole load of subjects, Italian subjects, Italian topics. I hope you enjoyed this extended look at the Italo-Ethiopian War. And I genuinely hope it makes up for the travesty that was the original version of this episode. Just doing what I can, guys, trying to erase the memory of that travesty one remastered episode at a time. So I hope it succeeded. Let me know through the usual channels. I'm going to take my leave now. I know it's been nearly an hour, so if you guys have stuck with it all the way through, I'm glad. I'm not really sure how these kind of reach you, if you're happy to listen to them or not. I've gotten mostly good feedback some of people just basically say that they miss sean but he would abandon me and go to the netherlands and not much i can do about that so yeah thanks very much for listening guys i really appreciate it thanks for spreading the word and being fit and patronizing me as always wdfpodcast.com you're amazing you're amazing i know i know don't roll your eyes at me okay (laughs) it's time to go thanks very much for listening guys and i just might be seeing you all again very soon Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.